invite you to take a Bible and open it to Psalm 37. I'm going to take a break from 1 Corinthians for this week. Uh, now, the next two Sundays, Alex Watlington, RUF campus minister in California, will be here uh, to preach, and then Justin will preach uh, two weeks from today, and then I, Lord willing, plan to resume with 1 Corinthians uh, the Sunday after that. But I thought we'd look at Psalm 37. It's a long psalm. We're only going to look at the first 11 verses uh, today. So hear God's word as I read it. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness to the, as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. O oh, Father, we have been told by you that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask you would feed our hungry souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to mention before I begin the sermon that we, uh, we experienced two deaths in the congregation this past week. One is Jenna Robinson. Uh, she, she died a few nights ago. The funeral will be a week from yesterday. It'll be next Saturday. There are details at 11 a.m., but the details will be in the newspaper. Also, although not a member, the mother of one of our members, Crystal Cardis, her mother passed away, and, and that funeral's in Augusta. I don't, I don't know the particulars uh, of a particular day. A few years ago, Barbara and I took some old photographs that we had and we had them enlarged and framed and one was me as a about a five-year-old with my grandfather in front of his service station now if you're under about 30 a service station was what it was a gas station when you and you went there and they pumped gas for you and sometimes they clean the windshield too without wanting a tip demanding one at, like at a street corner and uh, he, he had this, this gas station, and we lived a couple of hours away, and so my dad or my mom would drive there for the weekend. We'd immediately go to the gas station. I loved going there. I loved the smells of the grease. I loved, the, I loved everything about it. I loved being with him. And I would get there, and I would change the handle of, that, that caused the hydraulic lift, you know, that lifts cars to go up in the air, and he'd let me sit on it, and he'd let me go up in the air and then come back down. And... But the picture is of me pumping gas into a car, five-year-old, and the granddad standing next to him. Now, if you did that today, you'd probably get your business taken away from you. You know, like, this was when life was fun. I mean, we didn't have regulations for everything. So, so I, I would get there. I'd put the red rag, you know, that they're, well, they used to have around places like that in my back pocket and, and pump the gas. And he's standing next to me, 
and he's telling me what to do. Well, Psalm 37 are the words of old King David. The, these are not the words of the, uh, the shepherd-turned-warrior uh, killing Goliath, David, at a young age. This is uh, elderly. This is toward the end of his life. And he's looking back. And like many older people, he's philosophical. And he's describing some of that in this psalm. And I, it's to our disadvantage that I only read the first 11 verses, but I hope that you'll read the rest later if, if you're not familiar with the psalm. Now, there's a main theme in this, and it's found in verses 1 and 2. This is the theme of the psalm. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. That's the theme of the entire psalm. And there are other psalms that deal with this theme, too. If you were here at the evening service last week, uh, Jeff Brannon led us in a study of Psalm 73, which deals with the pretty much the exact same subject. And who are the evildoers? And when it says don't fret, don't get worked up, don't, don't get so heated about, about the existence or the prosperity of evildoers, and it's repeated in verse 1 and verse 7 and verse 8, well, they're just godless people, people that you'd say leave God out. God doesn't, from their knowledge, play into their plans and their lives and what they do and who they do it with. And so... They may even be aggressive toward the righteous. It, it alludes to that here. And, and, and David says, don't, don't get worked up about that. Don't get worked up about their existence or at their numbers, how they multiply. Don't get worked up about their success and their prosperity. Well, what causes us to fret? Why would this bother us? Well, you, you commit your life to Christ and you have all these promises from the scriptures, and maybe you even add some assumptions that God's going to give me a successful life now, and, and you compare notes. You look at people around you, and here's, here's a neighbor that, that never acknowledges God. Church or anything related to God has nothing to do with this person's life, and they seem to prosper. They can't do anything wrong. They have the Midas touch. I heard someone say that the Midas touch is everything you touch turns into a, a muffler. But, I mean, they, they, theirs turns into gold. They can't do anything wrong. And you see this, and you're thinking, well, it, you know, I thought, I thought it's supposed to pay to serve God. Or you work in a place where there are a number of employees, and here's a person who seems to cut corners and even deceive and lie, and they get promoted. And they, they get commissions that you don't get, and you're trying to have integrity and be truthful. Or you're a student, and you, you're honest, and you don't cheat. And you, you study hard, and yet here's another student that that you happen to know maybe lies and deceives and, and cheats and they, they receive honors and you don't. Does that not bother you? Of course it does. It would bother anyone. And we look at such and as a Christian you might say, Lord, you have messed up. Someone has switched the price tags here. They, they put the $5 tag on the $100 item and vice versa. Something's wrong. Well, here's the reason not to fret. It's in verse 2. They will wither like grass. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the, the green herb. Like, here's the point. Just as grass, yesterday morning our, our grass was about that tall. By the time I mowed it, it's about that tall. But, but as of today, I imagine uh, there'll be brown grass where it was green and flourishing yesterday, uh, the parts that were cut off. And it takes that simple picture. And here's the point. 
you and I cannot interpret life only on the here and now. We have to look toward the end of what the scriptures say is the, of where are things heading. And if we evaluate things just as they are at the present, you would arrive at the conclusion it doesn't serve God. And so even David, as well as many other scriptures, says we have to look to the end. We have to look at what's going to happen after this life. In other words, to get the right perspective about the afflictions of the righteous, we must look to the end. We must look to the future. And so we have here four, I call them injunctions, four main ideas on what God wants us to do to help us in this. And verse 3 is the first one, and that is that God wants you to trust him. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. What is trust? Well, it's faith. It's not merely passive, it's active. In other words, if we really trust God, it will be reflected in the way that we deal with other people. And it has three elements, trust or faith. I'm using those words interchangeably, have three elements. First, there's knowledge, there's content. Uh, Then there's consent to that knowledge. Sound like a motorcycle. So there's knowledge, content, I must know about God before I can trust him. Then there has to be a consent to that content that, yes, I believe that's true. And then finally, there's a commitment to that. Now, the last point, the commitment involves personal commitment to God, just as marriage involves a personal commitment to that person. You take vows before God and these witnesses. So God frequently asks for our trust. He says, trust me. And Christ rebuked the disciples. He rebuked Thomas after the resurrection. He said, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So if it's clear that God wants us to trust him, why is it so difficult for people like me and perhaps for you to do that? Well, sometimes it's an issue of the content, the knowledge. We have bad theology. We misunderstand who God is. Years ago, many years ago, uh, uh, a couple in, in, in this church, and they've since gone to be with the Lord, but they came to, to see me, to talk to me about an issue where they had experienced years and years ago a crisis in their family. And the wife, who was sitting there with her husband, with, with me, uh, had an activity in her life, a recreational activity that was a good activity, nothing wrong with it. It it's, it's, it'd be a good thing to do. And in the crisis of the family, she made a deal with God. And that deal was she would give up this activity she loved if God would solve their crisis. Well, they came to see me because the husband saw how much she needed an outlet now later in life, and he said, I want her to go back and do that. And I, uh, I said, now, now, why did you do this? Why, what were you thinking? And I would, honestly, I didn't say this out loud. I was shocked. I was thinking, what is it that you would think, well, what God really wants for me is no fun, and so I'm going to make a deal with him. I'll give him what he wants. Now, don't, but lest I sound harsh on that couple, and she never would go back and do that, uh, that, that activity. And I thought it was sad. It was a loss. I said, I think you were hasty in your words. You shouldn't have done that. I said, I, what you're talking about, I think, would benefit you and the family and your husband and everyone else. 
it, it didn't matter. She, she, she was set. But don't, have you ever walked out? I've walked out in the driveway and I had a flat tire. And my first thought was, oh, I knew she had a devotional this morning. God's getting me. He's going to get me. You know, he's going to, what, if, I, if I step out of line, he's, gonna, he's got that hammer and it's coming down. And I was talking with a man here in our church one time about financial issues. I'm no financial planner, but, but he was, it, was a, it was an issue in giving. And, and I asked him, I, because he was bringing it all up, I said, do you tithe? He said, of course I tithe. You think I want all the problems that would come into my life? If I didn't tithe, God would get me. What kind of theology? It's bad theology. That's what it is. It doesn't understand that God says that he loves us with an everlasting love. Is obedience important? Yes, of course, but we don't deal with God each day like, well, if I do this, you're bound to respond this way, and if I don't do this, I assume you're going to really, you know, you're going to hit me in the side of the head before the day's up. So sometimes we don't trust because he's not trustworthy, because of our bad theology. We need to read the Bible. We need to read, we need to read systematic theology about the attributes of God, that God is holy and God is merciful and God is just and God is patient and long-suffering of what all those things mean. There was a professor from uh, Dallas Seminary, uh, an evangelical seminary, years ago, and he came to speak at our church. I don't remember his name, which is no surprise. I don't remember my kids' names sometimes on this, but, but I, I can't remember but he was an author and so forth. But I remember what he said. There was a large meeting in our fellowship hall, and he was telling us about, we were talking about our views of God. And he said, when students come to our seminary, when they are entering, we give them a survey. And we ask them to write an essay about their earthly father and the relationship they have with him. Three years later, when they're getting ready to graduate from seminary, three to four years later, we ask them to write an essay about their relationship with God and how they view God. Guess what? In almost every case, they're identical. Now, what's my point? Often our theology about God, it's been formed by our own experiences. It's been formed with family relationships. It's been formed with church backgrounds, and often we need to go back to the scriptures and, and ask, Lord, I want to see you as you really are, not the way I contrive you to be. So God wants you to trust him, rest in him. Secondly, God wants you to delight in him. Verses 4 to 6, I won't reread it, but God, God wants you to delight in him. Psalm 1 says that the blessed man delights in the law of God and in his law he meditates day and night. I mean, God has uniquely created us with the capacity to delight in things. I remember the first time I saw it. I was in the fifth grade, I believe, and I was walking in our downtown of my small Alabama hometown of about 50,000 people, and there was a sporting goods store. And I looked in the display window, and there it was. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen before I met Barbara. And, and I saw it, and I, I said, I've just got, I've got to buy that. I've got to buy it. It, it was oak with high gloss. With, it was a skateboard. And it, I, I, I thought about it. I dreamt about it. I saved every, back then a quarter meant something. I saved quarters and everything. And I finally, after about six weeks, I had the money to buy it. My father took me down there and I bought that skateboard. I delighted in it before I got it. I delighted in it when I had it. And I delighted 
in the short life that it lived and then the abuse that I gave to it. But the unique thing is, why is it that you and I, unlike so much of the rest of creation, can delight in things, maybe in an idea or uh, uh, a, a performance of some sort or a food or a trip or an experience or a person or a, a story or a book? And you get involved in that, and you say, I just delight in this. God has made you with that capacity. That is part of the creation. He has hardwired you to find delight. But he has also made it where our delight cannot satisfy us with anything in this life. We can ultimately only be satisfied with him. And this is important to understand. That's why the skateboard would have lost its luster even if it had been permanent and not temporary and got ruined when someone left it out in the rain, namely me. But God has made you to delight in himself. James Boyce wrote this. He said, This is ironic. Before people are Christians, they resist a relationship with God because they do not think God is desirable. They suppose him to be moralistic and harsh, establishing rules intended only to keep people from fulfilling themselves or having fun. But the truth is different, for the God we come to know in salvation is entirely delightful. He is holy. He is also sovereign, exalted, the awesome God the Bible shows him to be. He cannot be taken lightly. But in addition to these weighty truths about him, he is also a source of delight. For he is the perfection of grace, compassion, mercy, kindness, patience, and love. He is, in other words, like Jesus Christ, and the better we know him, the more we will delight in him. And then he closed with this sentence, The reason many apparent Christians do not delight in God is that they do not know him very well. And the reason they do not know him well is they do not spend time with him. Now my late mentor, David Nicholas, took those thoughts and put it this way. God wants you to get to know him. As you get to know him, you will learn to love him. As you love him, you will learn to trust him. As you trust him, you will learn to obey him. If you do not obey him, it's because you do not trust him. If you do not trust him, it's because you do not love him. And if you do not love him, it's because you do not know him. So God has made us to experience delight and ultimately in him. I just briefly want to look at verse 4 because it is the best known verse out of this psalm and often the most misunderstood Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Just briefly and simply, this verse does not mean that you can ask for and receive anything your heart may desire. Oh, it says if I delight in him, I've wanted a Ferrari for a long time. Lord, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. No, what it means is if God is your chief delight, he will give you the desires that are new. He will literally change the desires of your heart. And as you find your pleasures in him, he will give you different desires. Some of you right now are going through life transformation. I hope all of us are. And you're probably astounded at how God, you can look back and say, you know, I used to want that more than anything in the world. Now I could care less about it. What's happened? This verse has happened. You're delighting in God and he's changing the desires of your heart. A third. Verses 5 and 6 say God not only wants you to trust him, he wants you to delight in him, he wants you to commit your way to him. To commit means to roll something upon God. 
is the idea of like this large burden, this large backpack that's 120 pounds and it's weighing you down and you shift it over and you roll it over to God. When it says roll your, commit your way, that's your plans, that's your life. It may be anxiety, it may be anxiety of broken relationships or emotional anxiety, the anxiety of an unknown future, the anxiety of a false accusation. I mean, the list could go on and on. But look at the promise he gives in verse 6. If you do that, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now, if you know your Bible, you know the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. So what righteousness is this speaking of when it says he's going to bring your righteousness as the light? It's talking about the righteousness we get through Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. Imagine a young woman, and she, she's in her latter 20s, early 30s, and she meets a man, and they, they love each other, and they decide, we, we want to spend the rest of our lives together. We're going to get married. And so they meet with a preacher for premarital counseling. And he asks a question I always ask when I meet with a couple. Is there any financial debt in your life that your fiancé does not know about? Because once you get married, they're going to, that debt's going to become their debt too. And let's say that the young woman says, well, yes, there is. Due to student loans, medical bills, and excessive credit card spending, I have $500,000 of debt. And he looks at her. And so they, the day of the wedding, they take their marriage vows and they're married. Now they're husband and wife. And right after that, the groom says to his bride, I want to give you something. This is the note where I went yesterday afternoon and I paid off that $500,000. Your debt is gone. And not only that, but I put another $500,000 into your checking account. So I not only paid what you owed, I have given you, I've moved you from the red to the black. Well, what happens with us when we come to know Christ is God takes our unrighteousness and Christ, through Christ, forgives it, washes it clean, wipes out the debt, and then he gives us the robes of righteousness of Christ. He clothes us with Jesus' obedience. And so now he sees you and me, believer, through the righteousness of Christ. That's how he sees us. That goes back to my story. Why do you think God's mad at you? He might be if he only saw you with your righteousness. He sees you with Christ's righteousness in, as a believer in Christ. That's why Martin Luther, about this, said, when we come to Christ, we are married to him by faith. Like a bride, we give him all we have, namely our sin. And he gives us all he has, namely all his righteousness. So what worries you today? In, in your life, what anxieties do you face? God invites you to roll those, to commit those to him. Last point, fourth point. Not only God wants you to trust him, delight in him, commit your way to him, he wants you to be still and wait for him. And maybe this is the hardest of it all. 
because it tells us in verses 7 through 11 that be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. These two concepts go go together. To be still is to rest or to be silent and to wait, they're hand in hand. To wait on God means to do so with expectation. Nobody likes to wait. Do you like to wait? FedEx years ago had a this this in one of their advertisements. I saw it and I wrote it down. Waiting is frustrating, demoralizing, agonizing, aggravating, annoying, time-consuming, and incredibly expensive. Can I hear an amen for FedEx? I mean, we may feel that way. It just annoys us. I was reading the psychology of waiting. Here are some of the observations in that article. One, anxiety makes waits seem longer. Second, uncertain waits are longer than known waits. In other words, if you're waiting, say, at a doctor's office, and they come out and tell you the doctor's been detained for 30 minutes, but in 30 minutes he or she will see you. That's much easier to handle than not not knowing what's going on. Wait, wait, I was supposed to be here at 10, and now it's 10.20. The more valuable the service, the the longer the customer will wait. I thought this was fascinating. For example, let's say you're waiting in an airport at the gate to board the plane to go to some destination you're really looking forward to. That is an easy wait if you're excited about it. But the moment the plane lands there, what happens? Everybody stands up. I'm ready to get off this plane. We barely arrived at the gate. You can't get out any faster by standing up. You know, we've got to stand here in this line. Well, the psychology is the waiting on the front end had a value to it. But the waiting at the end, there's no value. And so everybody's aggravated. Did I see William? Uh, One of our airline pilots, I was going to ask him, see if I got a, a nod from him. The last observation was solo waiting feels longer than waiting in a group. Hey, that's the church. There's comfort in knowing you're not alone. So when we read the Bible, waiting seems to be the norm rather than the exception. I tell people I think most of the Christian life is lived at the red light rather than the green light. We're waiting for God to lead or direct or things to happen. Billy Graham was once asked, if you had three years of ministry, how would you spend it? He said, I'd spend the first two years in preparation for the last year. Noah waited 120 years before the rain came, and during that time, he endured the insults of his neighbors in derision, and perhaps his own doubts as well. Job lost his family, his health, his wealth, and one of the most well-known examples of suffering in his Bible, but through his suffering, he chose to wait upon the Lord. Abraham, at age 75, he left a prosperous land, and he moved around, and most people don't know this, for 100 years. It was a hundred years that Abraham was on the move. Joseph, sold by his brothers, wrongly accused, ends up in prison for 13 years for a crime he did not commit. He waited on God, trust in God's sovereignty. Moses, well-educated, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. At age 40, he kills an Egyptian. He flees for his life and then spends nearly 40 years in a desert learning to wait on God. Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, sets out to destroy Christianity by persecuting Christians. He's converted. 
he spends three years alone growing in the knowledge of his Savior. So waiting on God seems to be the rule rather than the exception. And the last point I want to conclude with this is the problem of waiting, we often don't see what's happening. It seems like a waste of time. What is God doing? Apparently nothing. There is a unique plant which grows in Malaysia. It's called Chinese bamboo. And it's got a very unusual growth pattern. So you plant it, you plant the... You see how much of a gardener I am. You plant the seed in a mound of dirt. And you water and fertilize it for a year. And then at the end of one year, nothing has happened. So the second year, you continue to water it and fertilize it all year. Nothing happens. The third year, you water and fertilize it. Nothing happens. The fourth year, you water and fertilize it. Nothing happens. Finally, in the fifth year, you water and fertilize it. And in 90 days, it grows 90 feet. You heard me. I said it right. 90 days, 90 feet. Now, ask yourself. When did the tree actually grow? Only in those 90 days after five years or during the five years? Well, the answer lies in what was not seen. Because what was going on those first five years is an entire underground root system. And it was being developed. And it spread out deep and wide, preparing to support the incredible heights the tree will eventually reach. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. And be still and wait patiently for him. Let's pray together. Our Father, our only way to approach you is through the righteousness of Christ. May our trust be in him and him only. And we would pray for one another and for each of ourselves that we would do as this psalm, these words inspired from this older king David that we would delight in you we'd commit our way to you we would wait patiently there are people here that have been waiting on certain things perhaps not just for weeks or months or years maybe for decades and they wane in their faith they wonder what you're up to if anything pray that today that faith might be renewed help us to trust you we're so quick to trust ourselves and our own smarts or our own abilities. And we pray that our trust would not be in something so weak, but in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.